You're listening to Uncovered, The Lover's Lane Murders. I'm Kayla Branch, and at the end of episode three, investigators had taken testimonies from 14 young adults who came forward claiming Frank Gilly had harassed them while they were parked on Lover's Lanes. We'll start back up with thoughts from Linda Adams, Cheryl's older sister. He just, he just looked at my mom and said, Sue, I'm going after him. They're not going to do anything. And he got in his truck and took off, and I know he had a rifle or what. He was going to drive to Amarillo, Texas, and kill him. And, oh, your first thought is, good, I hope you do. But then, he got, oh, pretty far, but not real far, and started thinking. He told my mother. Then I remembered, I've still got you. I still got Linda, and I still got Steve. So he drove back home. Linda told us about her dad, overcome with anger and sadness, jumping in the car one night a few months after the murders to go find Frank Gilly himself. The Benhams became close with investigators, especially Ken Jacobson, the lead investigator from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. He and Ken Jacobson, I remember that name a lot. I think dad was with him you know, a long time on what was going on. I mean, he was so, so honest and wanted wanted justice done, but when you can't because of the, uh, the way things are done, it's hard. He kept the Benhams updated on the case. He told them that Gilly was their main suspect, but they were struggling to convince other law enforcement officials, like the DA's office or the OSBI, that he could be charged with the murders of Cheryl and David. It seemed like there was a main theory our sources kept coming back to on why it was so difficult to solve the case, even after the testimonies from other young couples who had also been harassed on lovers' lanes in the area, and from Butch Green, Gilly's former partner, who told police Gilly had lied about not owning 22 caliber weapons. The phrase, good old boys, was repeated to me several times. Everyone was referring to the idea that during the time of the murders, the men stuck together no matter what. They covered for one another and allowed scandals and corruption to be swept under the rug. This meant that investigators were not only working a difficult case, but were also working against bosses and colleagues, politics, and public perception. Investigators said Bill Hensley, the Norman police chief at the time, wanted to make sure this case didn't reflect poorly on him or the department. He hoped to become a director of the OSBI, Jacobson said, and a mark like this on someone's record could derail a rising career. Investigators were also dealing with the biases of the Norman community. Many thought a cop would never commit such a crime. It's my opinion that there were some folks working against us. Um, I wanted to file some kind of a lesser charge on Gilly just to get him in jail because I thought he'd go to pieces if he got in jail. So, you know, I wanted to file impersonate an officer when he would tell these kids he was the sheriff. And the DA refused to file. And, and he told me he said, if I file a case like that, it'll set law enforcement back 20 years in Oklahoma. You know, what, is that, what does that mean? I don't know. A few months into the investigation, detectives persuaded Hensley to give Gilly a second polygraph test. Gilly had taken his first polygraph a few days after the murders, and when Hensley said he passed, Gilly packed up his bags and left the force. Now, Gilly was living in Amarillo, presumably with his parents, Jacobson told us. 
Hensley set it up. And at that time, we weren't sure that Hensley was for us or against us. But he said, he called us, you know, one night, said, Frank, agreed to take polygraph, going to do it at DPS headquarters in Lubbock. I thought that was unusual because Frank lived in Amarillo. Lubbock and Amarillo are nearly two hours away from each other. But we jumped in a car, Oklahoma City, and drove out to Lubbock, and I drove all night. And we got out there, and... Uh, the polygraph examiner was an old Texas Ranger, was Hensley's buddy. You know, and they patted each other on the back, good to see you and all this stuff. And uh, of course, Gillick passed polygraph. We didn't get talked to him. Undeterred by the two past polygraphs, investigators kept digging. Using the testimonies from other young couples and from Butch Green, they eventually secured a warrant to search Gilly's home in Amarillo in December of 1970. State police officers came to assist. And Frank stood on the porch and he said, well, Rangers can come in, but you guys from Oklahoma can't come in. And the Ranger said, you don't have any choice, Frank. These guys with us, you know, we're all coming in. Frank said, I don't have any 22 caliber weapons. I never owned one. I wouldn't have one. But investigators did find 22 caliber weapons in the house. However, they were technically owned by Gilly's father. They took the weapons and tried to match them with some of the shell casings from the crime scene, but the test came back without a ballistics match, Jacobson said. In the coming months, detectives tailed Gilly as he went to work at his various odd jobs. They tried to set up sting operations, but they came back with no solid evidence. Investigators believe they reached a tipping point in March of 1971 when they persuaded the district attorney to bring Gilly in on charges of impersonating an officer in connection with the statements given to police by the various teen couples. Gilly was brought into the Amarillo police station and had his mugshots taken. Impersonating an officer today can lead to jail time and thousands of dollars in fines. But in 1971, Gilly didn't spend any time in jail. Norman investigators tried to use these charges to connect Gilly with Cheryl and Dave's murders. But in the end, nothing ever came of that either. Eventually, Jacobson told Ben Benham, Cheryl's father, to try writing a letter to Oklahoma's attorney general and see if a grand jury could be convened, effectively skipping the need for authorization from heads of local agencies and instead giving officers a way to immediately close in on Gilly. Benham did write the letter on May 11, 1971, exactly one year after the body of his daughter and her date were found in the trunk of Dave's car. He sent it to the Norman mayor, the DA, and even Mike Brake, who still has an original copy. I'm writing this in hopes that some of the people receiving this letter can provide answers, he typed. He had seven specific questions. One, why a man with an aggravated assault charge in Texas had been hired as a Norman cop. Two, why Hensley hadn't focused the investigation closer on Gilly from the beginning. Three, four, and five, why before Gilly was hired, he didn't take a polygraph test, have a background check, or enter his fingerprints into the system. Six, why Gilly was allowed to resign days after the murders. Seven, how much did Hensley know but wasn't letting on? Months went by without a response or a jury. In the spring of 1971, the bodies of Gilly's former partner, Butch Green, and Green's mistress were found after her husband shot and killed them when he found the pair together. When the husband went to court, it was speculated that Gilly was involved, that maybe he had tipped off the husband to the affair. Before Green died, Gilly had come back to investigators claiming that Green had something to do with the murders of Cheryl and David. He told Jacobson he needed to shift his focus elsewhere, but Jacobson was already convinced Gilly was the main suspect. 
By this point, it had been over a year since the murders, and the small group of dedicated investigators had spent hundreds of hours on the case. They began to feel the full weight of frustration that only a couple of guys were truly working together to bring down a case held back by politics. You know, it, one of the hardest things about something like this is what, is what you know happened and you can't prove. Mm -hmm. And there's probably a million cases like that. Yeah. This one's really unique in that it involved a police officer and that I think that if we'd had 100% cooperation from the get-go that we still could have cleared it. It wasn't until 1972 that the case seemed like it might pick back up again. The grand jury Cheryl's father had requested would finally convene. On March 8, 1972, the grand jury met for the first time in Cleveland County to listen to witness testimonies and decide if there were any charges that could be filed against Gilly or if there was mishandling they could hold the local law agencies accountable for. Most of the trial information was kept from the public, but news articles indicated that Hensley and other officers testified, as did Jacobson and the other investigators. The judge for the jury was the former Cleveland County DA, who had previously refused to go after Gilly, Jacobson said. The jury went on for a few days, but that's really the end of it. An article almost 15 years later cites the grand jury's final decision, saying, We have investigated any and all complaints against the district attorney or his office and find them without merit. Some people just wouldn't believe that a policeman could do something like this. And of course, I didn't believe it at first. When these kids start coming up and picking his picture out of the photo lineup is when I really started believing they uh, knew what they were talking about. Jacobson left the OSBI almost a year later. He said the politics were too much, that true policing was impossible because of it. He was only on the force for three years, mostly focused on this one case. We had like a cold case file and I would go through old homicide cases just to not so much to try to solve them as to see how uh, guys worked them in the past. And this is Dave Pirro, a Norman police officer from 1981 to 2004. This case was in there, um, but it was one that, it was kind of a taboo subject. Because of, of the way it was handled back in the 70s, um, there was, and, and the fact that uh, the main suspect had been a Norman officer, um, there was a lot of talk about cover-up from um, the chief of police back then and everything, so the, the whole thing just had a kind of a bad, uh, a bad smell to it, I guess, if you want to put it that way, but, you know, it was like, hey, look, you know, that case will probably never, never go anywhere, so just forget that one, you can look at the rest. He told us about finding the old case information from the murders and becoming interested. And he answered a crucial question about why the case came into the spotlight again after nearly 20 years since the initial investigation. February of 1990, um, just out of the blue, um, the old landlord for where Frank Gilly, where he used to live. This was one of the houses Gilly lived in full time when he was a Norman police officer and on and off for a few months after the murders. He, he, Frank had rented a house from this guy, and he brings in this 22 rifle. The caliber of the weapon that killed Dave and Cheryl. And he, and he told us where he'd gotten it. And he actually found the gun. He, 
He says he found the gun actually in August of 1970. Three months after the murders. But he, but he kept it for 20 years, didn't know that there was any significance to the fact that it was a 22 rifle and it may have belonged to Gilly. He, and we didn't know if this was a gun or not, but the fact that it sort of caught Gilly in a lie, um, I was able to talk to my supervisor. Uh, we went, kind of went up the chain, went to the chief, said, hey, look, can we... Can we maybe open this case back up, take a take another look at it, um, see see where we can go with it? Uh, he said, yeah, but go to the DA's office and kind of talk things over with him. The new team of investigators, led by Piro, took the gun and ran tests, but it came back without a match. This was a disappointment, but it paled in comparison to the news detectives received when they went to the OSBI to retrieve the rest of the case evidence. Uh, Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation because they had helped out on the, um, the murder investigation as well, and they're the ones that have the labs and everything in the stable. So the evidence was all turned over to the OSBI, and over the years, when we started looking for it, when we went back and started looking for those things, the OSBI couldn't locate them. So it just was gone. All, all the evidence was gone out of the OSBI. They were clothes, a bloody blanket, hair, and the roughly 30 shell casings that were all missing. Now detectives believe themselves to be without any physical evidence. But even though the gun turned over by Gilly's landlord wasn't the murder weapon, it gave Piro a path to officially reopen the case. They began surveillance on Gilly, finding out where he lived, following him to work. They picked through old evidence and files, contacting anyone who would still have a good recollection of what happened two decades before. Piro said investigators were discouraged by how the case was previously handled, but when they met up with the original case detectives like Ken Jacobson, it was a new opportunity for collaboration. Um, Ken was never gave up on the case. Um, as a matter of fact, he um, even all those years later, he kept track of where Gilly was. Um, on the sly, would leave him a little note on his car once in a while, but he wouldn't know Gilly wouldn't know where it came from, but. You know, yeah. we're still looking at you, that kind of stuff. A little, little psychological warfare, but... So we got Ken involved, and um, uh, so he became really instrumental in being able to help us out with, you know, kind of what happened back in the beginning, how the case kind of got convoluted into this big cover-up kind of thing by the, by the then chief of police back then. Jacobson, who had been involved with the case from the very morning the bodies were found, was happy another set of investigators would take up where he left off. Piro and Jacobson worked closely at times, and as Piro found out more about the case, his determination to give Cheryl and David justice mimicked his predecessor. You know, I'm thrilled that, that somebody's still uh, interested enough in it to try to put something together, and uh, you know, that's why I didn't hesitate to meet with y'all. Dave and Sherry, you know, deserve something better than what they got and their families. And you know, Maybe there is something in there we missed. Gilly was living close to Dallas in DeSoto, Texas in the early 90s. Piro and his fellow investigators would drive to Dallas frequently, watching Gilly's house, following him to work, trying to put together enough evidence to arrest him. With the information from the previous investigation, the gun turning up, and interviews with every single original witness except one that died, Detectives decided to try and get a warrant to search Gilly's DeSoto residence. Um, we went down and we um, talked to a judge in Dallas, kind of an old Texas judge, but uh, we walked into his office and we had 
a probable cause for the search warrant. And then um, he kind of looked at the case and looked when it was, and he said, trail's kind of cold, isn't it, boys? <laughs> we said, well, you're right, yeah, it is, but, you know, he's... So he, he signed off in the search warrant. In the search warrant, officers claimed that Gilly likely still had possession of items from the crime scene, like David's shoes and car keys, a scrapbook of newspaper articles and personal photos of the scene, and possibly the murder weapon. Investigators spoke with former wives of Gillies, who said he was obsessed with his former life as a cop, keeping firearms, badges, uniforms, and other police paraphernalia close by. That he had a rampant temper and always carried a gun. The daughter of one of his wives said Gilly had answered yes when she asked him if he'd ever killed anyone, though there is no record of a lawful killing on Gilly's police file. On November 21, 1990, officers were able to search Gilly's residence. Went to DeSoto, went in his went in his house. We found a gun safe in, in his house that we couldn't get into. So Frank was at work, and so we got a locksmith to come out and get us in the safe. And then in the safe, we found some more weapons. Uh, one of them was a sawed-off shotgun, which is illegal. Uh, so we had him with an illegal weapon there in Dallas County. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were afraid that if 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 we didn't let him know we wouldn't know when he was coming home so we called him at work DeSoto PD called him and said you know is this Mr. Gilly and he said yeah he said well Mr. Gilly you know we're I'm standing here in your living room looks like somebody broke into the house Gilly rushed home to a frenzy of officers he thought we were just working the dickens out of his burglary and then we sort of told him got some good news and bad news you know it was us that broke into your house and you're under arrest he looked at he started looking around and he looked at me and he said, where are you from? And I said, Norman, Oklahoma. And he said, I thought so. Next time on Uncovered, the Lover's Lane Murders. And I just love to look him straight in the face and say, what happened? How did you kill them? What really happened? Why? Yeah, I think, I think Gilly was out there going to just Try to get a glimpse of some boobies and mm-hmm. harass some kids mm-hmm. like he'd done many times before and runs into somebody that knew who he was. With Gilly arrested, Pirro believes detectives can finally charge him with the murders of Cheryl and David. But the Cleveland County DA wants to give a grand jury another try. <laughs>